Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Conflict isn't just between people, it's within us. We all have inherent contradictions within us. That is the way we're built. Happy Hump Day. Wednesday, for many, is something of a turning point in the week. Not only are you excited about the latest episode of Behind the Spine being released, obviously, but you're also halfway through. You can see the end of your work week on the horizon. These days, barely a week passes without an expose on the toxic work culture of a major organisation or political party. Even much-loved TV stars like Ellen DeGeneres have been caught up in bullying scandals. So it's no surprise, then, that many of us live for the weekend. But if you ever stop to question why toxicity seems to run through the workplace, why it's not a rare thing... Gabriella Braun unravels this question in her new non-fiction novel, All That We Are, uncovering the hidden truths behind our behaviour at work. Gabriella is the director of Working Well, a specialist consultancy firm using psychoanalytic and systemic thinking to help leaders and teams understand this very subject. And I'm delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. There's a book in this. We bring all that we are into the workplace. We leave nothing behind, try as we might. Everything that happened to us outside of the nine to five comes along for the ride. It's all too easy for us to unconsciously create rifts between other colleagues, to unintentionally start battles or make others feel uncomfortable. Through a collection of stories from her professional and personal experience, Gabriella shares insights from over 20 years of using psychoanalysis to reveal the full extent to which every organisation is affected by the personalities and psychological makeup of its leaders and staff, and the importance of understanding ourselves and each other. The hope is that by understanding the influence of our unconscious mind, we can improve our well-being and performance, form good relationships with colleagues, and build more humane working lives. Gabriella tells us about the genesis of the book. I became rather obsessed about the idea that people like me, consultants working in my very small and very niche field, which is applying psychoanalytic thinking and systemic thinking to working with organisations, with leaders and teams, we are so bad at communicating that out in the world. And it remains known by few. And I, I became very obsessed by thinking, this is so relevant. If only we'd communicate it better. Then I had the idea of doing the seminar series, which was called the What's It Got To Do With It series. And it was about leadership. What's leadership got to do with psychoanalysis or the other way around? And I ran all these seminars and all these people came who'd never heard of me, didn't know anything about psychoanalysis and were fascinated. So that very quickly led me to think there's a book in this. And I ran the seminar series because I wanted to start talking to ordinary people who never knew about psychoanalysis applied to the workplace. And I found that they were there was such an appetite. People were very interested. And then I thought, this is a book. Unfortunately, I found that a seminar did not equate to a chapter. So it wasn't quite as easy as I thought. I mean, it certainly is a book. It's a book and then some. It really is. I 
found myself, I must admit, to being hugely conflicted. Uh, and I took my I took my tone from your introduction. And I did bring all that we are or all that I am to the reading of the book. But I find it very difficult to split the human being part of me and the writing part of me, because as a human being, I was heartbroken, appalled, anxious, nervous, sad, happy, all at the same time, because you do a really good job of unpicking the feral nature of the workplace. But as a writer, I was absolutely fascinated by the level of dysfunction and conflict in these workplace relationships. I know I've said this to you via email, but I wanted the opportunity to say this to your face. This in my view, should be mandatory reading for many, many reasons, but certainly for writers, because it is a masterclass in character breakdown and how to mix dysfunction together to create the most bizarre form of conflict and jeopardy. And I feel bad saying that because the human being part of me is saying, no, this is terrible. You're trying to help these people. But the writing part of me is going, this is more. This is absolutely brilliant. I want more dysfunction. I want more conflict because that is our job as writers. One of the things that I noticed in your writing is that you include yourself as a character. And I wondered the extent to which you had learnt about your work by writing about it. Did you notice anything in the writing that made you think, oh, that's interesting. I do that a lot, or I, I should do more of that. Was this an exercise in not just writing it, but was this an, a way to analyze your own craft as a psychoanalyst? I did learn a huge amount about how I work in, and I'm not clinically trained, so I'm not a psychoanalyst, but I apply psychoanalysis and I'm trained to do that. I learned, I mean, I'd had 12 years as a patient in psychoanalysis before I got near this book. So I did know myself very well, you know, five times a week or four times a week analysis for years. I knew myself well. And yet, writing the book, I discovered not only exactly as you say, far more about the way I work than I'd known before became clear to me. But also I made discoveries about my background, about my history, about why I do the work I do that I hadn't known about before. In some ways, it was almost like a top-up analysis. It was a, and, and I did... Partly because I brought myself in, I suppose, I dug incredibly deep. So I learned loads about me as well as about how I work. There is one particular chapter which it would be remiss of me not to raise that I'm not exaggerating. And I think if the audience listening to this end up reading this book, which they should, they will eventually get to speaking the unspeakable which is a chapter that it is fair to say changed my life. And I will forever have that in the back of my mind. And if that's what it did to me, I cannot begin to understand the impact it had on you. It's an astonishingly brave and honest chapter. And without going into too much of the detail, 
I think at some point in our lives, all of us have thought about our ancestors and our family tree and what happened to us that led us to be the people that we are today. Your own journey of discovery for your family tree is, again, I'm not exaggerating, is genuinely life changing. But I get from the book that that has been in a bizarre way, hugely beneficial to you in terms of explaining things. Regular listeners will know that we've been on a journey of discovery of generational trauma over the last few series of this show. And it's come up again. If you don't mind, Gabriella, could you just talk to us about that chapter and what you discussed? Because it, it it's so telling. You know, it, it's such a trauma, but it explains so much, doesn't it? Well, thank you so much, Mark. And saying also what you just said before, that the book should be mandatory reading for all sorts of people and certainly writers. That's an amazing thing to hear. And thank you. And that, that reading that chapter changed your life is just stunning. So, yes, I, I wasn't initially, I had no intention of including myself in the book in the way that I have. Yes, including myself as a consultant, but not including myself and my background. And as I was writing, I came to the chapter, I'm going back a bit, but it'll explain something, I hope. I came to the chapter on belonging and I thought, I suddenly thought, maybe I should do this from first person. And I wrote to my editor because there'd been no conversation of me as a character in that sense. And I said, I'm thinking of doing this as a first person. What do you think? She said, interesting, give it a go. So she was encouraging of that. And that was the breakthrough moment, that chapter belonging. And by the time I got to speaking the unspeakable, which is much later in the book, I looked at the words on the page and I thought, what on earth? Why did I think this was a good idea as, as a chapter? What on earth did I think I was going to write? I'd written, written something in the chapter outlines in my proposal, I can't remember what, but it certainly wasn't anything to do with me. And I felt completely lost. But actually, it's an instance where the unconscious can be incredibly helpful. My unconscious obviously knew this was a good thing to be onto. And speaking the unspeakable was exactly the right chapter title. And as I thought about it, I thought, oh my God, of course I know what to write. This is my background. This is absolutely my background. So then I started writing from that. And it was during lockdowns and my sister, for want of a project during the first major lockdowns, was studying our family tree and would report to me regularly on the numbers of murders of our ancestors in the Holocaust. And I thought I knew a lot. About We both thought we knew a lot about what had happened to our family. We thought about 10 people had been killed in the Holocaust. And I think the final number that she discovered is something like 160. I mean, it's just vastly more than we knew. And suddenly there I was in this territory of realising how much had been impossible for my parents and other family members to talk about. It just wasn't possible, but it was transmitted. And that's the thing about transgenerational trauma. It comes down, and it comes down more if it can't be spoken. 
because it's transmitted in what happens unconsciously between generations. So my parents would have unconsciously projected some of their terrors, their fears, their trauma into me, into us as children, without knowing they were doing that, without intending to do that. But the more things can't be talked about, they can't be thought about. And the Holocaust is, you know, how do you really think about it? On whichever way you come from, I was incredibly moved by Angela Findlay's podcast with you in my grandfather's shadow. And that brought me to tears. I mean, she has been on that journey from another angle. But whichever angle, if things can't be talked about, you kind of breathe them in, they're bequeathed to you in an unconscious way. And I realised just how much there were ghosts in my background that I hadn't really known about. And another of your podcasts, Juan Gabriel Vasquez, talks brilliantly about how we don't make decisions on our own. There are other things happening that influence us. So I I really uncovered that. And in that chapter, I talk about what my analyst said, my psychoanalyst said to me very early on in analysis. He talked about the concentration camp in my mind, which, well, you can imagine, you know, what a thing. It was absolutely a staggering thing to hear. And until I wrote it in the book, I hadn't ever told anyone. Chapter two, on the receiving end of me. The concentration camp in my mind. Wow. This notion of things being unspoken is really the essence of this entire book. Gabriella holds seminars for her clients to open up a dialogue where there has previously been silence. And in the book, we get a glimpse into some of those seminars, chapters of the book that left me bewildered by the insanity of how difficult people find the simple notion of communication, how they rely not on reason, but on assumptions and the projections of their own inner turmoil to guide their emotions and views of one another. At times, things seem so broken, it made me think we need a massive factory reset on the world. There were even moments in these seminars where things seemed to descend into utter chaos. Well, I wouldn't say chaos, although I I understand you using that word. And there's one chapter where I do say stop, you know, because it is going too far. And I say stop, and they do. And I think sometimes clients are surprised that I let it run as far as I let it run, that I don't quickly come in and stop the nastiness. But actually, there's no point doing that, because if you stop it, you don't understand it. You have to see it. I have to see it, and they have to see it. We have to see it together in order to then work with it. And so speaking can be incredibly simple and incredibly difficult and incredibly anxiety-provoking. And I think one of the things that is really helpful is that people start to learn that it's survivable. You can say hard stuff. You can promise each other that you won't hurt each other, but that's a bit rubbish because how do you know? <laughs> you know? How do you know you're not going to hurt each other? You don't. We don't know each other's internal worlds. We don't know what buttons we're pushing. So you might say something hurtful, but it's usually 
not always, but usually recoverable. And I think I, I agree with you about the factory reset in terms of, and in a way, I suppose that's part of what I'm trying to say. We've gone so wrong in the world and in the workplace. And of course, the two reflect each other. And the workplace is, I think, a huge reflector of the world. You know, it influences the world and it absorbs the world. So it's a very cutting edge place to view things from. And I think in one way, I am trying to say, look how far wrong we've gone. We've got to change this. And that was also the genesis of the book, why I wanted to write it. And that applies not only in the workplace, exactly as you say, but I also think that we can't just stop everything and get off and start again and press reset. But we can, in not that difficult ways, make huge change. So if we actually stop being so frightened of human nature, frightened of the fact that we are, you know, that the conflict and dysfunction that you talk about and the jeopardy that can increase for characters in a novel, they increase like mad in the workplace where we're thrown into a play, as, as it were, of different characters that we didn't pick. But they're, they're also not, that conflict isn't just between people, it's within us. It's all, always, we all have inherent contradictions within us. That is the way we're built. We have a drive towards constructiveness and towards living and generosity and kindness and compassion and love. And we have an op opposing drive. So those opposing pulls are in us as well as between us. And I think if we actually start to take that seriously and think, okay, this really is who we are. Instead of trying to pretend that it's not and being so frightened of it, maybe we can, you know, like trying to talk properly to each other, like trying to notice our own motives and our own behaviour, not just assume everything is the other person's fault, like trying to notice our moments of madness, like when we're totally paranoid and doesn't really have much to do with reality. Those things can make a huge difference. The moments of madness is a great phrase. And you do talk about how sane people can have moments of insanity on a whim for, you know, for, for many different reasons. And the example that I offered to you in, in my email to you was, was Will Smith at last year's Oscars. It's quite a huge moment of madness, but he has used that phrase himself. He has, you know, he, he has talked about it and talked about his regret about it and, and how one moment of madness can, can lead to profound trauma for a long period of time after the fact. But you're right. Everyone's fighting some form of battle that we know nothing about. And, and I've been, I was very conscious reading it of my own behavior in the workplace. And I'll give you one really, really small example. In the first lockdown, I had a Zoom call with a former colleague and she had started a business which was offering consulting and mentoring and advice to introverted people. And she said, it was really interesting, Mark. She said, I always enjoyed talking to you, but the thing that crippled me with fear and anxiety was when you would ask me a question outside of a formalized meeting. So if I just saw her in the corridor, 
and asked her a question, it would cripple her with anxiety. And I never knew or understood that. And it's amazing, isn't it? The impact that you can have. And I've often used this phrase, do you know what it's like being on the receiving end of you? Because it can be really off-putting if you're a particular type of person. And I once heard a wonderful differentiation between an introvert and an extrovert, which was the difference between an introvert and an extrovert is about five seconds. And I found that really interesting in that I would pretty much put my hand up straight. In fact, I wouldn't even put my hand up. I would just answer the question or I would just say something. And that's not easy to be on the receiving end of at times. And what I saw in your chapters is that these people are confronting each other and they're, they're not aware of the impact of being on the receiving end of each other. And it, and it just leads to this feral dysfunction that is stopping these people achieving all of the things that they're paid to do. You know, we talk about productivity as if it's a thing that everybody understands. And what we don't understand is that what we should be doing is considerably more listening and considerably being more aware of the impact that we're having on each other. I am not a person of science, but I do understand that for some people, people like me, for example, are difficult to deal with because they just aren't the same person as me. They don't think the same way that I do. And I have tried very hard. And I think hosting this show has made me a considerably better listener because I'm having to understand that the joy of this show is that not everybody's like you, Gabriella. Everybody is different. And so I need to adapt to that. And I think it's made me a better listener. And it's certainly made me deeply aware of what it's like being on the receiving end of me. And I thought a lot about that Zoom call while I was reading your book, because it did make me think that, wow, these people have no idea how many problems they're causing by behavior that they don't realize is adding to the, to, I said chaos, I'll use it again, is adding to the problem, right? I think that's right. And I think it's a great question to ask ourselves, you know, do we know what it's like being on the receiving end of us? And there's another thing that complicates it more, which we we don't generally know about, which is that we're not only ourselves when we're in a group of people, or sometimes even with one other person, because unconsciously, certainly in a group, things get projected around the place. So we might unconsciously, somebody may project into me, for instance, the bits of themselves they can't bear or a bit of themselves they can't bear. So aggression, envy, whatever it is, it could be a good bit, like, you know, being competent, but for whatever reason, somebody can't manage. And we don't know we're doing it. We've no idea. It's completely unconscious. But that means that in a group, we may well be being ourselves, but not only ourselves, because we may also have in us something that's been projected by other people. Projection's very clever. The unconscious is very clever. So they, the unconscious between people will recognise, your unconscious and mine, would recognise what the right hooks are. So you, your unconscious wouldn't try and project into me something that won't have any hook at all. 
it'll find someone else for that. You know, it's got to have a hook for it to take hold. But then it will be adding to what's mine anyway. I'll have other stuff there. So sometimes we might behave in ways that we think, Jesus, what happened to me? What was that all about? I don't normally do that. And that's probably because we're in the group of projective processes, which are very hard and they add a whole other layer to what's going on in a group, especially in the workplace where you're not just sitting being a group of people. You've got to work. You've got productivity targets. You've got performance. You've got ever driving need for more and greater profit for doing more for less, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now you've got recession, quiet quitting, great resignation. You know, the workplace is under enormous stress. So that adds to all of these human dynamics that go on unspoken. Chapter three, learning to write again. Stories can be found everywhere, but as Gabriella said earlier, often in academia, the human element can be lost, obscured by the formal structure, data and complex language. The problem is for writers of academic papers, it can be very difficult to unlearn their way of communication and writing. But if you pick up a copy of All That We Are, and you really should, you'll see that in order to make sure these fascinating stories and these important messages were not lost or buried, Gabriella has done an astonishing job of learning a new way of writing. Because this book is nothing less than a literary novel. It reads like a story. But of course, this was not an overnight process. Mark, I think that is the biggest, best praise you could have given me that it reads like a novel. That is absolutely wonderful, wonderful to hear. And you're right, it didn't come overnight. It took years. And you're right, I had to learn it. I I only knew about writing papers or essays, or I didn't know this kind of writing at all. I did decide when I set off on this journey, thinking it would be very easy, ha-ha, I knew from the outset that I wanted to reach a mainstream general audience. I did not want to talk to people like me, the people who know about psychoanalysis, who know about all of this stuff. I didn't want to write for us. I wanted to write for people like you, for people working down the road, for people running organisations, you know, etc. Not for me. So I want to get to a mainstream publisher. I knew I couldn't write in an academic way. What I didn't know was that I actually had no idea how you do that. And I also didn't know that I couldn't do it. So at the beginning, the first draft of the book was a million miles away from how it's ended up because I simply didn't have the skills to do what I've now done and what, and I now have produced the book I really wanted to produce, but I didn't know that and I didn't know how to do that. But I took the writing very seriously. I got myself a writing mentor. I went on writing retreats. Um, My mentor worked with me for years. And I learned to, to my amazement, actually, the craft of writing became a real joy. I really enjoyed it. I remembered that as a child, I loved writing stories, but somehow that got knocked out of me. But it's almost as if I found something that I'd lost very, very, very long time ago. And I 
it came back. And so I really developed the craft and put a lot of time and effort into that. So you saying it reads like a novel and the the people are real. They are real, but they're also composite because I had to be so careful about confidentiality. So they're composite and sometimes I add bits of friction to make sure of confidentiality. I try and I tried to always make sure I was truthful without always being absolutely factual in terms of the people. Hearing you talk about finding joy in writing is a real joy. And I completely agree with what you've said. My heart sank last week when Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, said that his vision was to make every body study maths until the age of 18. And I think a tiny piece of me and indeed other people died that day because for some reason we do beat storytelling out of younger people. I don't know why, but it is for me the most remarkable thing. I've I've long said that telling a story is like lighting a candle in the mind of a child and you can see them grow and storytelling is innate in human beings. And we've been telling stories for longer than we've been speaking in words and sentences. Storytelling did not start as a linguistic construct. It has become one because we have invented language. It started with cave paintings. So it's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. And so I have no idea why we would want to beat that out of people. But for some reason, we do. And these people that you talk about, in your chapters, many of them I felt had been beaten down and did feel oppressed by the workplace system and had lost the joy, not of telling stories, but of being alive. And I would find it impossible, based on your notion of all that we are, I would find it impossible to exist in a world in which I couldn't tell stories and couldn't embrace storytelling. And it made me, again, think about jobs that I've had where I haven't been able to do that. And they were some of the most unhappy times of my life. And I hadn't realized it at the time. But that is, for many people, what life is like every single day. And that's truly heartbreaking. And to separate the writer from the human being, the human being part of me is in mourning for those people. But the writing part of me is like, this is amazing. This is this is this is real character. This is real storytelling. We as writers need to pour immense misery onto our characters on a regular basis because that's good jeopardy. But in real life, that's hugely heartbreaking. And I I wondered whether you'd taken joy in helping people realize that they are unhappy and and finding a way to be happy i can imagine that the majority of your work is extremely distressing and extremely difficult but i would like to hope there is real joy in your life when you are able to help a group of people navigate the dysfunction and come out of the chaos as a more functioning cohesive unit than than they are when you first find them that must be wonderful it is absolutely wonderful and incredibly rewarding. And some of the work is very painful and very difficult and very challenging. Yet there is also something about when somebody tells you some of 
what's really going on for them, including the sadness and the loss and the mourning and the complexity and the opposition, etc., etc. When they tell you that, it is immensely moving. It sounds such a cliche to say it's a privilege, but it is. It's a privilege to be with someone, to be so connected with someone, and to see them get hold of their own story. Because going back to the storytelling, I think one of the things I discovered in my own, as a patient in psychoanalysis, was that I couldn't tell my story. I couldn't form my story partly because of the silences, partly because I had a mentally ill mother and that was pretty difficult. And we moved all the time and we were immigrants and my parents didn't speak English as their first language and we were very different. All of that meant that I, my internal story of my own life and myself was very fragmented. And I didn't even know that. I didn't know that I couldn't tell find my story and finding it was part of the road to my retuning of myself my finding reshaping myself my changing identity my geographic structure started to change of my internal world it changed a lot actually and I think similarly with groups and as it happens I've written about the workplace but you're so right to say this is about human beings and it's so wonderful to hear you say it reads like a novel so it needn't be in the workplace it happens to be what I do and it is a great vehicle but what I find incredibly helpful for groups or individuals in my work is that they learn their story they start to get hold of their story And actually, I think putting it like that, it's only just come to me through what you've just said. I haven't quite put it like that before. But I think that's part of what happens in the work, that like I learned to, they learned to get hold of their story and tell it to themselves and to each other and to make sense of it. And that can be, however sad it is, like the chapter about looking forward to looking backwards to move forwards and the head teacher in a school and it's terribly sad and yet there is a good outcome and she does come through something there are all sorts of I think the saddest chapters are where the protagonist doesn't come to something you realize that's it they're going to just do what they always did because sometimes we do yes there are a number of chapters that end with a huge sense of regret from you that the person walked away and didn't engage. And, and often it's it's clear that you've learned when to let people go because you can't force them to come and talk to you. You can't force them to engage. They have to be ready. And there were a number of these people that, that we meet in the book are clearly not ready. And, and I think it's, it's obvious that you could have helped them, but the ability to help is essentially irrelevant if they're not ready to engage they, they have to be in the right place don't they for you to be able to help them and it takes a lot there's one chapter where I talk about turning a blind eye and we all we all use that phrase we know that phrase we all turn a blind eye to ourselves at times and to things around us actually it takes a huge amount of courage to open our eyes to ourselves 
really open our eyes to ourselves takes a lot of courage. And some people, some of the characters in the book haven't got that yet or haven't got enough support in place to face that yet. Or their defences are so strong that they can't quite go there. And that is totally understandable. It might be sad and it might be that in time they'll get there and it might be that in time they'll never get there. But it, it is how we are. You know, it's some of the complexity. What I refused to do in the book was a kind of Pollyanna, it's all fine, because it's not. No, it's certainly not. But what it is, is an absolute triumph. The paperback edition of All That We Are is released, if you're listening to this, on the day of broadcast tomorrow, on Thursday, the 2nd of February. Gabriella Braun, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Mark, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure on my side. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Gabriella Braun for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? There's a book in everything. There are so many stories that still remain untold because people in the field may struggle to communicate the message or haven't dug deep to uncover the human side of their research. Whether you're in academia or not, make sure that these stories see the light of day. Consider including yourself as a character in your own book. Perhaps feature a chapter written from the first person. It may serve as an opportunity to find out more about yourself, your background, and your way of working. And finally, take the writing seriously. If you lack the literary skills to write a novel, but you know you have a great story to tell... Put in the work. Like Gabriella, get a writing mentor. Go on writing retreats. Write the first draft. Get it wrong. Make mistakes. Whatever it takes. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and will put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.